One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time. And one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Stephanie Feldman, author of the novel Saturnalia. And I love writing imagery. (laughs) I love, you know, following that kind of like lyrical, um, poetic vision. We'll be back with Stephanie Feldman after these essential words. First, I want to say thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents nine and a half years of weekly interviews with writers on craft and the literary life. This interview is one piece of an archive of more than 380 conversations that go into depth about how writers create their work and the subject matters that obsess them. Every single week to prepare and produce this show, I am doing three main tasks simultaneously. First, I'm reading and researching for the interview I'm going to do that week. Second, I'm editing and voicing the episode that will air the next week. Third, I'm contacting authors and publishers and researching the lineup for the next month and season. With this work, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without listener support. So I'm asking you with all my heart to please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member of the First Draft community. 
You are hearing this episode today 100% courtesy of those who transformed from listeners to supporters. And I have to say, it's been hard the last few months as inflation has impacted some of my loyal patrons who had to stop giving. Won't you be willing to replace them to keep this show alive? As a thank you, my patrons receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you mostly for listening and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My interview today is with Stephanie Feldman, author of the novels Saturnalia and The Angel of Losses, a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers selection and winner of the Crawford Fantasy Award. She is the co-editor of the multi-genre anthology Who Will Speak for America, and her stories and essays have appeared in Catapult Magazine, Electric Literature, Flash Fiction Online, and The Rumpus, among others. She lives outside Philadelphia with her family. Her new novel, Saturnalia, takes place in a near-future world in Philadelphia where belonging to private social clubs are the key to a successful future. The main character, Nina, recently walked away from the elite Saturn Club, a place of debauchery and flirtations with the occult, because it seemed more like a place of pain than a place of pleasure. But she is paying the costs for quitting. She lost her friends, her work, and her social status, Now it's the eve of a holiday called Saturnalia, where a carnival offers a reprieve from the depths of winter. The city is being eroded by climate change and a collapsing economy, and Nina feels the brunt of these challenges. She is asked by Max, a Saturn Club member and friend, to attend a Saturnalia party in disguise and steal a mysterious box. But it turns out that the box holds a secret terror that puts her life in jeopardy. We began the interview with Stephanie Feldman describing her work as speculative supernatural fiction and me asking her this question. And do you think there's something about your subject matters that it has to be written this way? I think this is just sort of my own idiom and my own vision. And I lean into it because I think, you know, whatever is exciting to me as a writer is probably the thing that I should be writing. And I love a ghost. There are some monsters in the book, and I love writing something that's a little creepy and mysterious. But, you know, I'm also very interested in our world world today. Uh, The Philadelphian Saturnalia is kind of a near future Philadelphia, but it's not that near future. (laughs) It's not that different from what we're experiencing in terms of instability and climate change. And so I use this sort of tilted world to... Uh, really explore those kinds of changes and how we as individuals and a society are facing them. So I would say that generally this book, your main character's name is Nina and she's, it is in like a future sort of undefined time and she lives in Philadelphia and 
she's pretty broke. The way that the culture at the time works is that there's these social clubs that might have more going on than just being social. Maybe they do alchemy, maybe they do spells, who knows what exactly these social clubs are doing, but they're belonging to one means that you have status, job opportunities, and opportunities to advance within your career and in social society. And she joined Saturnalia during college, but quit. And we learn a little bit more as the book goes on about why she quit. But because of that, she lost jobs, she lost money, and so she's on the brink of survival. Mm-hmm. And as the book opens, she's asked to go back to retrieve a mysterious package by a man who was um, older than her and in, in the club who she had respected a lot and was kind of a leader in the club. So we kind of have a journey story, a um, a story of potentially maybe her redemption of trying to figure out why did she quit the club because her two best friends she lost in that process. Um, one was named East and one was named Amparo. And and meanwhile, it feels like things are crumbling around her just because of climate change. Her dad has a bad injury to his hand. He lost his hand. And so she's offered a lot of money to go retrieve this item. So that's kind of the setup, and I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about this idea of of social clubs and having that be basically what determines your success in this future society. Yeah, so I started with this idea that I wanted to have a story take place over one night, um, and that led me to the winter solstice because it's the longest night, so it gives you a few extra hours or minutes to work with. And that brought me to this idea of carnival, because I was also very interested in, um, again, this question of what do we do when we have fear for tomorrow and we despair for tomorrow? And some people are going to party and give into hedonism. So that's the, the other backdrop. And so I was thinking about things like the Philadelphia Mummers Parade, which is a big um, New Year's uh, Day carnival, and also Mardi Gras. And Mardi Gras is organized by crews or groups that have floats and contribute to the parades. So I started thinking about these social clubs, um, but there is something bigger to them, which is status and mutual aid. You know, one of the things that Nina thinks about in the book is how these clubs started as mutual aid societies earlier in the nation's history when, you know, you couldn't depend on the state. Um, you had to depend on your neighbors, and often that meant depending on neighbors like you. So one thing I learned is that mutual aid organizations, um, many people think that they really started among the African-American community, um, and even the tradition dates back to Africa. And so the U.S. tradition of of mutual aid was born out of that community trying to support you know, its own members. Um, so in this time of great inequality and income stratification, people now rely on mutual aid societies more and more. Um, And also our social status, our hierarchies are also codified because I mean, today, a lot of our success depends on what clubs we're in. You know, even if that club is your alumni association uh, or the neighborhood you grew up in, or maybe the place of worship that you belong to. 
and all of those connections that can help someone rise in society or stay afloat in society. Um, in the book, you know, there are these um, mysterious clubs called the Saturn Club and the Pan Club that have these grand buildings and and host these um, very exclusive masquerades. But it's not too far off, I think, from um, our own experience here, too. I mean, it's really juicy, I think, too, to write about little societies like these or like microcosms within the bigger city um, as a fiction writer. So I'm wondering if you, like once you just created these, if you just took off from there, like what was your experience of, of creating the worlds? It was so fun. <laughs> and I wrote a lot of this, um, of this novel before the pandemic, but I live out in the suburbs and I have two little kids, um, though they're, maybe I can't call them little anymore, but I felt very cooped up in the house. And I had been writing stories about women who were stuck in houses and those stories weren't doing so well <laughs> because there's only so much you can do when you're stuck in a house. So one of the things I knew I needed to do with this novel was get my character out. And Nina spends the whole novel traveling through the city. And I was born in Philadelphia. I grew up in Philadelphia. I, I live outside the city now, so I know it very well. And so it was really fun to you know, sent her on this journey that I could map and say, now she's going to this corner. Now she's going into this store. Now she's going to go past the train station. Um, and then to, to twist it a little bit, you know, not just have this huge carnival filling the streets, but add, you know, a, a creepy masked stranger here or, um, a mysterious club named for an old God over there. And there's a, a cult in the cemetery. Um, uh, so it was really exciting and fun to, create this um, world on top of my own world. And I should say, because we didn't, that Saturnalia is sort of the day that all of Philadelphia calls the solstice. And it is like a 24-hour party with so much hedonism and debauchery. And it's fun, but there's also like something very scary about it. Um, I, you know, I, I took some of that from real life too. I think a lot of our celebrations often end in in violence. And I think this celebration in particular in the book is really fueled by fear and people are trying to escape the pressures of life for a day. Um, and some of those pressures have to do in the book with climate change. You know, there's economic pressures on the city because um, they have to keep the power grid up. There's flooding that contaminates the water sources. There are refugees um, from farther south who are escaping failing climate grids there. So that's a very hard thing. The landscape is changing. Um, I, I also introduced um, what I call summer fever, which is a mosquito-borne illness. That's one thing I've noticed here over the last few years. You know, the our insect populations have changed. There's West Nile virus here now, um, you know, and things like that. And um, I didn't intend for it to be a plague book because, again, it was before COVID. But, you know, that's another possibility or even thing that we're seeing now through climate change. And everyone in the book just they want to get away from that and they want to just drink and dance and have fun. But again, it's it's this drive that is isn't fueled by, you know, an innocent, you know, hopeful celebration, but escapism. There is a very ominous 
sense of violence. And we learn as we get into the book more some specific violence that happened against Nina, but at first we don't know. And I wanted to ask you about this, like this, this sense of, of rape that begins, which I was thinking it's also kind of about what's going on with the planet. I don't know if you were Mm -hmm. thinking about that, but um, just wanted to ask you about the introduction of this concept and that fear that sort of surrounds Nina from day one or moment one, I should say, since it's one day. And then we, we learn more about her life as we go on, but we don't know right away. Yeah. I think if there's, you know, a common thread there between what's happening to the planet, what the societies or contingents in the book are searching for and what Nina experienced, um, you know, not just assault, but harassment, diminishment, um, objectification. It's all about power and who has power and how they exploit people with less power. And, you know, for the the climate change aspect and, and the clubs, people are looking to hoard resources because they know that whatever is coming for our planet, we don't know exactly what it is, whatever is coming, um, there isn't room for all of us or at least that's how some of the characters feel. And if there isn't room for all of us, then I better make room for myself. And it's always been like that, you know, for so many of us, there's only so much room at the top. You know, if I want to be, if I want to get the job with the mayor, like one of the characters does, then that means I need to defeat all of my competition. And so people really use each other in all kinds of ways. And there are some you know, very clear, explicit ways. Um, But I also wanted to look at those more subtle instances. And Nina has these close relationships, or she once did. And now she has to look back at them and say, well, I thought this person was my friend. I thought this person loved me. But were they using me? You know, are they using me now? Are they manipulating me? Is it all sort of together? You know, that sort of love, but also selfishness, um, manipulation and allyship and how can she untangle all of that and also maintain her own sense of self and self-worth. So when we meet her in the very beginning, she seems to be like, not failed, I guess, but just kicked out of jobs, doing communications, writing kind of work. And she's reading people's cards, like a divinity divination card like a tarot card and we know that this day is different than other days not only because of Saturnalia but because she reads the cards for herself which she never does and she picks five cards and they are the drowning girl the laden jar the sphinx the horseman and the tree of life and we don't necessarily know like right away um how important those are but you separated the books into five parts and each one is one of these cards and each card that she picked is like the story that happens is reflective of that card. And I'm curious if this, so as a writer, I can imagine it helps you so much to structure this whole entire story. But I also think if you, I'm curious if you came to that really early on, 
and how how that helped you or maybe at times hindered you from writing this story? Uh, it definitely was a big uh, tool for me. <laughs> um, and again, part of it is just the fun of it. I, I loved inventing these divination cards. It's It functions like a tarot deck, but it's called the Saturn deck. So I got to choose my own images and titles. And it was just really fun to, to brainstorm, you know, the symbols and what the cards might look like and what they might mean. And, you know, I can't remember exactly when I broke it up into five sections. I think I did it pretty early and it it sort of works as a five act structure for me. So I could make sure that, um, you know, Nina's arc was well paced and proportioned. And I think that those are really the, the cards that and titles I was using from the beginning and, you know, I tweaked them a little bit as I went, but I found that, um, you know, each one provided not just, you know, parameters for my page count, but also themes that were important and that I could use throughout each section. And I really enjoyed doing that and making sure that, you know, for example, in the drowning girl section in the beginning, there's a lot of water imagery, um, but it also... And I love writing imagery. <laughs> I love, you know, following that kind of like lyrical, um, poetic vision. Um, but also it tells us something about who Nina is. You know, she she comments at some point that it's the one card that has uh, a figure in motion, right? She's not the drowned girl. She's the drowning girl. And that's kind of how Nina feels at the beginning, you know, like very defeated, but not entirely defeated, you know, and she still has fight in her. And then we, you know, we see her engage that through the rest of the book. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, we'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. One of the things she says early on in that section, and I think it's very apropos for understanding who her character is, and I wanted to ask you to tell me more about this, is she says, everything that made me a bad Saturn Club member makes me a good spy. And this was after Max said, will you go retrieve this? Well, she feels like she did a bad job <laughs> um, on that climbing that social ladder. She she wasn't charismatic enough. She didn't know how to draw people to her, to be a leader, to be glamorous, um, which is what everyone is doing there when they try to call attention to themselves and, and cultivate power among allies and followers. 
So at first she's worried about going back. Oh, people are going to see me. They're going to wonder where I've been. They're going to know that I'm out of place because I quit three years ago. And her insecurity is telling her, well, actually, I'll be a great spy because nobody cares about me. No one ever cared about me. No one will notice me. And I think in that moment, she's she's saying it kind of like, oh, this gives me a sense of power, but it's really something for her to move past to that, you know, there's a part of her that still wishes she had succeeded. And, you know, what she's going to come to learn is that that's not the real kind of success, you know, climbing the ladder to be, you know, the crab at the top of the bucket is not really what she wants to be. It's not her true ambition. She, she needs to think outside of that. So once she says yes, and partly it's definitely the money that Max offers her, and, and her, her quest is to basically get in the club, go into this upstairs room, and there's a box like hidden under the floor, and to bring him this box. And people are wearing costumes and masks, and she's, you know, he gave her a ticket to get in, and there's ceremonies going on. So the first section is super rich with world building and creating the culture and the visuals of this place. And we see her sneaking in, we see a ritual with a pig that dies and all this. And I'm wondering how you, what kind of experience you had before, if any, of writing sort of a really tension filled mystery because I, I sort of think when you write something like this, there's two parts, there's the quest to get the thing. And then she had the thing so yeah. it's really high pressure when she's trying to get the thing. Uh, this was kind of the challenge to myself. <laughs> I had been working on other novels and not really getting anywhere and hearing the feedback that they moved too slowly or the stakes weren't clear. Um, and at the same time, I've been teaching in an MFA program at Arcadia University and also teaching for Catapult. So I spend a lot of time talking to students about story structure and analyzing their story structure and um, tension and turning points and how to build up to a climactic moment that is satisfying on a plot level, but also on an emotional level. So anyway, I really felt like this is my time. I have to, I have to put all of this into this story. And I just, I, I don't want to hear feedback again that, my story was too slow or the first 20 pages were too slow. So um, I sort of gave myself the assignment. And, you know, I talked about putting the story over one night and that was part of it too. I was like, let my let me rein myself in a little bit, give myself some limitations and I'm going to work within them. Um, and, and so that was my goal. <laughs> and when the first reviews came in, they called it a thriller and I felt like, okay, I, I must've succeeded. Um, I managed to be clear. And, you know, the box is part of that too. A very simple goal. She wants to get that box um, and then she wants to get out. Right. And then there are complications that follow, but at the same time, you know, the box matters because of all the things that we've discussed, you know, her past, her place in this social hierarchy, um, her own, feelings about herself and how she was rejected or how she withdrew after being mistreated. Um, and the box is, and what's inside the box becomes a vehicle for her to face all of that. Do you feel like since you put these very strict parameters on this, that 
it taught you how to do it in such a way that next time you might be able to do it without these parameters? Well, I hope so. (laughs) I think that every story and every novel is its own problem. So I definitely would not, you know, or, well, I guess who knows what the future will bring. But right now I have no plans to write something else that takes place in a, in a single night because I want to try new things. And hopefully I can still apply uh, those lessons about clarity of purpose and tension and pacing to whatever project is next. Right now I, I'm working on a novel that takes place in three different eras. So it's a very different kind of structure and a very different kind of puzzle. Um, and yeah, I, I need to bring with me what I've learned from that writing, but then also tackle new problems. Yeah. I was thinking that maybe when you gave your writing to your, to your writing group or your friends who read it and give you feedback that maybe they won't say it's too slow anymore because you've had that, like you've done it, like almost like, um, absorbing that experience with your body and your mind of writing that way, that maybe it comes easier. Like I'd like to think that our lives as a writer, that we're iterative and we learn things along the way. Yeah, I think so too. I think it, a lot of it is repetition and practice. And, you know, it's not just writing this novel, but writing all the short fiction that I've been writing over the last few years has helped me help me too. And I say this to my students, you know, if you have a particular challenge that you face in your work, like um, having a clear problem for your narrator or making sure that your world is strong enough, uh, you can't fix it with one lesson or with one bit of feedback. It might be something that you're going to be working on for a while, but when you know that that's, I don't want to say weakness, but that that's your challenge, you're going to attend to it and you're going to learn to um, think in a different way, but also learn to edit. So it could be, you know, maybe my first drafts will always be muddy at the beginning in terms of stakes. Um, I hope not, (laughs) but even if they are, it's something that I know how to look for and revise for. So once she gets the box and had to overcome a lot of challenges to get the box, her, next task was to bring it to Max and he tried to make it very simple for her like I'll have a car come get it but she sort of realized along the way between getting the box because there's something following her it's like this big dangerous amorphous looking dark monsterish thing that's following her and so that adds some tension too because it's always there but she sort of realizes when she gets out some intersection with this monster that's following her that's called a, a mandragora. So this mandragora yeah. is following her and that um, she sort of realizes that Max might not be this well-intentioned friend that maybe he was setting her up some way or just using her to get what he needed and then she would be out of the way and n- maybe not benefit in the way that she thought. So then yeah. she was on a quest to like save herself basically And so she had to figure out, well, what is in this box? And it was kind of like this jar of this dark liquid and was covered up. And what turned out to be inside of it, you called a homunculus, a a tiny little human. (laughs) It was like a tiny little human, like maybe the size of a shrimp or a little more 
we know it has sharp teeth. So it, it's this little homunculus. Um, she took it out and it bit her and it was just like this little creature. So can you talk a little bit about who was in that jar? Yeah. Wow. The homunculus. So the homunculus was also one of my first inspirations for the story. Um, I read about it in another book, um, Umberto Echo's Foucault's Pendulum, which has a lot of secret societies. And there's there's one scene uh, where the characters visit an alchemist's house for a big party. <laughs> and it's a very short scene in the book, uh, but it stayed with me. It was so atmospheric and mysterious. And there's a homunculus there. So the homunculus is part of um, alchemical lore. We, I mean, I always thought of alchemy as um, the pursuit of turning base metals into gold. And I guess that's part of it, but it's also a metaphor. And alchemists were also interested in learning the secrets of human life and creating life. Often, how can we create life without women? <laughs> um, that was a big question. And one of the things that they could create was a homunculus. So there are stories of alchemists creating homunculi that can um, tell the future, um, homunculi that they have to feed with blood, um, that can share secrets with them. Um, and again, I just thought it was a super cool, like super creepy image that I, I brought into the book. And, um, I think it started to become really important because of the question of its humanity. Um, it sure looks like a tiny human, but is it human like the rest of us? And what does it deserve? There are people in the book who would treat it as, I say an animal, but even as less than an animal, you know, they want to use it for their own purposes. And Nina finds herself in the position of being its protector. And she doesn't really like it at first because it's a tiny person in a jar. It's like not, not great. Um, and it bit her, which wasn't kind of it. But she also realizes that when it bit her, it wasn't out of malice. It was out of fear. Um, it was, she had taken it out of its of its liquid and it, it couldn't breathe and it was scared for its own survival. And she had become the monster in that moment. So she begins to identify with it and consider her own responsibility for its, its well-being and whatever violence may come to it. So it becomes another way to think about what we owe each other and what kind of person, you know, we want to be. So what, what about that though, was really interesting to you? Was it that question or, you, you know, cause you said you read it in uh, that book and then couldn't stop thinking about it. I don't know. I don't know if there was anything just beyond how striking that image is. And it was something that I wanted to explore. And I think, you know, I said something earlier about leaning into the things that excite me as um, a writer and oftentimes it's something that is kind of enigmatic and different and striking for some reason. And it made me want to investigate it. And I suppose there are all different things I could have done with that creature. Um, just like there are different things I could have done with a carnival setting or secret societies. Um, but as I thought about how to use these pieces together and I, I thought about the bigger questions driving the book like um, how to live in a time of slow apocalypse and power and violence. Um, I developed these different elements to work together in, in support of answering or exploring those questions. 
it was really interesting to see what was in the box that he wanted so badly. And part of the reason, or I guess I'm, I'm wondering if you can explain a little more about this, this alchemy, this idea that for these, there was a group that included Max and her old friend East that were, was trying to create life. They were reading books and doing all kinds of spells. And there were people that died, um, not necessarily making it in that exact action, but being part of that smaller group. And um, what they were trying to achieve, like how did creating this human sort of interface with both the secret society and the climate? Yeah. So what they really wanted was to find a way to tell the future. And you know, they had learned that a homunculus is one way to do that. And I, I took that from some legends I had read about different alchemists, different homunculi over the years. Um, particularly, there's this, there's this one story about an abbey who created these um, multiple homunculi and they you could use them to tell the future. And the characters in the book really want to know what's going to happen next. And they have very sort of specific and almost quotidian reasons, you know, they they know that not all of our planet is going to be habitable. And so they want to ask the homunculus, where should we go? Like, give me some coordinates, give me a realtor's name, like what land should I buy? Because there's a land grab going on um, for habitable and arable land. Um, where should we go once we pool our money, all of us, you know, rich folks behind the curtain? And um, they they want the homunculus to speak to them and and tell them. And there's a moment where Nina thinks, wow, like you've created this human life or human hybrid kind of life, this amazing thing. And you just want to ask it like what neighborhood to move to. <laughs> and once you move there, you're going to leave the rest of us behind. And, you know, what what kind of pursuit is this? You know, these are the people I wanted to be among. These are the people I wanted to be like. Uh, and is this still the kind of person that I want to be? So we have this little tiny thing, but then yeah. we have this big thing. That's the Mandragora. And um, the origin of, of this monster also came from some spells and other activities. Yeah. So these alchemists, um, they're basically just throwing stuff against the wall to see <laughs> what was going to work. You know, they were very desperate to, um, you know, find these ways of telling the future and to impress the, their investors who are the even more powerful people at the club. And so one of their experiments produced this tiny little homunculus and one of them produced the mandragora. And there are legends about the mandrake root, um, which is a plant that has a human kind of look about it. It has like multiple limbs that sometimes look like a human figure. And there's stories about them, um, you know, that they can scream or they can grow into people. There's, I think there's a mandrake in Harry Potter. Uh, <laughs> I've been told um, my mandrake grows very, very big. <laughs> and again, becomes almost pressed into service by um, some of these figures in the book that want to use it, but it turns out to have its own agenda like everybody else does in the book. So we sort of have these two experiments and one turned out very small, one turned out very big. There's a question about how they can communicate or not. And um, 
how dangerous they are and who they're dangerous for. Sounds like a lot of work to be in a secret society and try to do alchemy. (laughs) Yeah, it does sound like a lot of work. It's a lot of emotional labor. (laughs) I think it's kind of like the show Survivor. I watch Survivor. It's a lot of trying to figure out who is really your ally and and who isn't and who can you trust and who is going to leave you in the dust, you know, after they get what they want from you. And I think this question about our human nature to want to know the future in a way. I mean, they were asking a very specific question about like, where is it safe to live? So it's about their longevity and survival. And I mean, we never know when we're going to be hit by a car (laughs) anyway, but it does say something about people's maybe lack of being able to deal with the resources they have in front of them. Yeah. And that was very personal for me too. just, over the last, um, let me do some math, six years, um, feeling like the world around us was very uncertain. Um, a lot of instabilities, a lot of institutions being threatened. Um, I mean, I'm speaking politically in the United States and across the world too. Um, and also climate change. And I, I think personally, I experienced this this sort of existential fear I had never had before or never in such a sustained way of thinking, Oh my God, like I'm afraid to check the news in the morning because I don't know if a tweet is going to start nuclear war (laughs) with North Korea or, you know, what other terrible thing might befall us. And, you know, it's a terrible way to live. (laughs) And the characters in the book are, are responding to that too. Um, so I, I guess I was also asking this question of how can we deal with that fear and manage that fear without letting it destroy us or lead us down dark paths into being people that we don't want to be. And I think there's also questions about how do we stop ourselves from finding community? I mean, one of the elements of the book that I thought was really interesting was that Nina had this best friend, Amparo, and they live together, those two plus East, this, uh, their friend, um, who was a male, joined the society together. They met in college. They were all very good friends, although Nina had a lot of more feelings for East. And he, like, really toyed and played with her. And then something happened with Nina and East and she didn't tell Amparo and they just stopped being friends and her friend never knew why. And while I was reading the book, I kept saying to Nina, like, why didn't you just tell her? Why didn't you just tell her? So I guess I have the opportunity to say like, why was that important to you for her not to be forthcoming? This sounds so sadistic, but I I wanted Nina to be alone at the beginning. (laughs) She doesn't have any allies um, when she's returning to this whole scene and the situation. And I mean, what misery that one enemy is your ex-boyfriend that you loved so dearly. And another enemy is your best friend or the person who used to be your best friend. And, um, you know, there were terrible things that were done to Nina. Nina also did terrible things to other people. Um, And of course, because 
she's my character and because you know we're all complicated i know you know why she didn't tell amparo about the things that happened to her because she was ashamed and she was scared and she was panicked um then it became too late she felt to come back she knew she had hurt amparo and she thought well i can never make it up to her or i'm afraid after all this time to try um Amparo tried to warn me and I didn't listen to her and I'm ashamed to admit that now. Um, but uh, I think having her face these different figures from her past helps her grow on multiple levels. You know, she has to become a stronger person, but in different ways, you know, and whether that means gathering her power against one person or making herself vulnerable to another person and saying, I, I want to be there for you. I do love you. I do want to be open with you. Um, you know, that's another kind of strength. Yeah. She was very alone and that's probably very good for, uh, a fictitious character. Yeah. It's like that old saying about how you have to torment your characters. Um, but you really need a place for your character to go. So I often think who is my character at the beginning? And who is my character at the end? And I ask that, you know, of my students or editing clients a lot too, because that's another way to investigate your story structure and your plot arc. Have they changed in some way? And, you know, the best way to do that, especially if you need to sustain a novel, is to like really push hard on that that first stage, you know, make Nina as alone as possible, um, facing, you know, as many mistakes and um, I mean, enemies might be too strong a word, but antagonists maybe as possible. Um, and then she has so much more room to grow into a new person by the end. So what did you learn? I mean, we talked about pacing and things like that, but what did you learn, if anything, from writing this novel? Um, on, a, on a craft level, uh, another big thing that I learned was about world building you know, and, and world building at large, not just about building a, a fantasy or alternative world, but um, how much we can convey with just suggestion and how not to get lost in the bigger questions. You know, it's a pretty short book. I think it's about 240 pages. And I don't pause to give, you know, a lengthy history of the city or explain the origins of summer fever. Um, but as I wrote and received feedback and revised, I learned how to um, give the sense of a bigger world um, while not getting pulled away into the kinds of, you know, big world building pieces that would take us away from the story. And, you know, those are the kind of books that I like to read, too. And I think it's fun to operate by suggestion, maybe because I also enjoy, you know, scary stories and supernatural stories. And and what's scarier, right, than the thing that you can't quite see? And what's more exciting than a world that you catch a, catch glimpses of but have to fill in the rest with your imagination? Can you read a passage from an author that influences you as a writer? So um, related to my last comments on world building, um, I felt very indebted to 
uh, novellas when I wrote this. Um, this book is a novel. It's a short novel. And I, I borrowed a lot from just wonderful novellas that managed to conjure a whole world and characters in a short space. So I thought, let me read to you from one of those books that really showed me the possibilities and um, fun of those kinds of stories. This is Daryl Gregory's We Are All Completely Fine, which is a horror novella. And I'll read just the beginning. There were six of us in the beginning, three men and two women and Dr. Sayer, Jan, though some of us never learned to call her by her first name. She was a psychologist who found us and then persuaded us that a group experience could prove useful in ways that one-on-one -on -one counseling could not. After all, one of the issues we had in common was that we each thought we were unique, not just survivors, but soul survivors. We wore our scars like badges. Consider Harrison, one of the first to arrive at the building for that initial meeting. Once upon a time, he'd been the boy hero of Dunsmith, the monster detective. Now he sat behind the wheel of his car, watching the windows of her office, trying to decide whether he would break his promise to her and skip out. The office was in a two-story craft-style house on the north side of the city, on a woodsy block that could look sinister or comforting depending on the light. A decade before, this family home had been rezoned and colonized by shrinks. They converted the bedrooms to offices, made the living room into a lobby, and planted a sign out front declaring its name to be the Elms. Maybe not the best name, Harrison thought. He would have suggested a species of tree that wasn't constantly in danger of being wiped out. Do you want to share more about why you chose that? Uh, yeah. So like I said, this was one of the books that I read that, you know, showed me the possibilities of shorter fiction, um, but also demonstrated how to fit in information in a really, you know, economic way, as we'll often say in a writer's workshop. And revisiting those opening passages, I can see again, just, you know, how much he puts into, those were two paragraphs. So, you know, we know that we're working with a therapy group of soul survivors. Um, there's already this sense of skepticism uh, and then we get our first character, Harrison, who used to be a boy hero, <laughs> a monster detective. Um, and it, it's also really funny. He's very good at using humor in his stories. So it's very funny also to imagine this boy hero just sitting in his car, staring at his therapist's office. Um, and I think, you know, this contrast is so strong too. this former boy hero. You know, now he's sitting in his car, staring at this converted house. Um, trying to decide if he's willing to go to group therapy. Um, and even that it's called the Elms and his his acknowledgement that, you know, they should have chosen a species of, of tree that was a little bit more hardy, which is funny, but it's also sinister because it just continues this, this sense of um, this ominous feeling um, for all of these soul survivors. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Sure. I'm going to read from Saturnalia. <laughs> this is the beginning of part two. You think you will know the end when it arrives. How could you miss an epic plague, a meteorite plunging into the sea, a zombie invasion? How could you miss a tidal wave or a government coup, 
nuclear annihilation, or environmental collapse. We reassured ourselves by imagining ever more fantastic catastrophes while the real disasters unfolded. We saw the bees disappearing and the seas warming and the anonymous oligarchs funding political campaigns. Sometimes it seemed it was all we talked about, but our complaints were mundane. The weather, for instance, no snow on Christmas. Flood insurance premiums increased, but only on the coast. And don't they have enough money there? Those people with their beach houses? I can't afford a beach house. I can't afford any house. I can't afford my education, but no one told me that until after I graduated. I'm just glad there's a basement, muddy though it is. My phone trills tornado alarms in the middle of the night. More and more tornadoes spinning off from more and more hurricanes. But it's just the weather. Hasn't the weather always been bad? Haven't we always had Lyme disease? Haven't we always longed for spring to come early? Can't I just focus on those little gifts, those simple pleasures, a flower blooming in December? Can't I have anything to sweeten the mounting grit of daily life here in the end of days? Because now, as we all know, it's too late, a tipping point. The floodwaters and mosquitoes and tornadoes are killing us here in Pennsylvania, but we're lucky. Lucky we're not in another region of the spraying country running from fires, rationing water, or sinking into the rising tide, or in another part of the world, which has tipped, which spills nations across borders, which puts people in a jar and shakes them until they fight like scorpions. There are scorpions here now in the private estates that were once Fairmount Park, the biggest urban park system in the country. No one knows how they got here, far from their traditional desert habitats, but they seem at home. Do you want to say anything more about that? Yeah. So that's actually um, a sort of uncharacteristic passage in the book. Most of the the book is very anchored in the present. Um, Of course, there are flashbacks too, but we're very much in Nina's experience as she moves from here and there and encounters all of these characters and creatures we discussed. And that was a moment in the book where I, I paused to give more of an impressionistic sense of the world and what is, um, you know, weighing on Nina, but also on society as a whole. And I worked a lot with that passage because I wanted it to be, like I said, impressionistic and to give a feeling, um, but also include key details about this particular region and her particular life. You know, she's here in um, in the city where we have Fairmount Park, and she is in a muddy basement because she can't afford her own home. Um, although I have own my own home, and it also has a muddy basement, so it's not mutually exclusive. <laughs> um, but I worked a lot with that passage to try to move between, um, you know, the the atmosphere and the personal. Where do you write? Um, I really write a lot at the dining room table. <laughs> I have my own office, um, but I don't work a lot there. So I'm usually at the dining room table, um, but I float around. So sometimes I'm on a couch, which is very bad for my neck. And um, now that I get out again, I like to go to a coffee shop. So I have a few different places. I find that it helps keep my brain moving if I change scenery every so often. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Uh, when I really want to get away from writing, I'll often take a walk. Um, but that sometimes takes me back to writing because that's where I have my ideas. Um, 
sometimes, you know, I, I think I have to switch from writing to reading. <laughs> I mean, I try, I read every day anyway, I make a point of it, you know, when I'm going through very busy times too, but more and more I'll have days where I think today I'm not writing at all, but I'm going to sit down with this book and finish it. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have a number of critique partners, writer friends. I have a critique group um, that meets periodically. So we share our work. Um, I guess we meet usually every month and then sometimes in between. And I have a few other writer friends that I exchange with. So um, I guess I've put together a little team over the years. How have you dealt with rejection? Um, I would say uh, it feels like I deal with it poorly because sometimes I take it (laughs) personally, or I let it hurt my feelings. Um, I shouldn't say I let it, you know, I'm just a human being. Um, so sometimes it rolls off my back and sometimes it really bothers me, but I just keep writing. And I don't know if that's a response to rejection or just has to do with my own compulsion to write and recognizing that I'm going to keep writing does help with the rejection because, you know, I know it's not going to stop me. And I know that I have you know, ideas that I want to start and projects that I'm in the middle of. And, you know, I stay focused on them as much as I can. And what is your favorite word? I am going to go with haunt. I kind of like the way it sounds. It sort of sounds like what it means. And I think it's a good word for describing my, my work. And because like I said, I do like to write darker fiction and, and lean into horror, especially these days. Um, But even aside from those kinds of plot elements, a lot of my work is about characters who are haunted by things, you know, their past, their fears, um, their struggles. That's a lot of, you know, how I imagine um, a plot arc. Um, And I think also it, it gives you a sense of my, the kind of horror writer I am. I've been spending a lot of time with horror writers and and thinking about myself in that way, but I, I'm not into like gore, you know, sometimes as a movie watcher, but I don't write gore. I'm not writing a ton of, um, I was gonna say I'm not writing a ton of creatures, but there are creatures in this book, but I like a good old fashioned psychological horror uh, or ghost story. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This was such a great discussion. If you liked today's show with Stephanie Feldman, author of the novel Saturnalia, check out my interview with her and Nathaniel Popkin on their anthology called Who Will Speak for America that tackled issues like climate change, immigration, education, and racism in a post-Trump world. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 385 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft ADOW. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash first draft writers. 
Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Jai, Chakrabarty, Mona Simpson, and Catherine Ma. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.